Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 80. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on July 11th, 2022 in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. With a title like The Mayflower Moment in History, there will be at least a few of you who have not necessarily listened to all of the previous 79 substantive episodes of the History of the Americans podcast. No worries, you can still enjoy this one. However, you might enjoy it even more if you have listened to the three Road to Plymouth episodes, and especially the first one. The Road to Plymouth Part 1, The First Pilgrims, opens with my take on why more Americans look to Plymouth as their origin story than Jamestown, which shapes how I think of it. Might be a useful refresher even for those of you who heard it a few weeks back. As you know, I follow my muse, and this week my muse dictates that I start at the end of the story, how Americans have looked upon the Mayflower moment, and particularly the famous Mayflower Compact, over time. Then, with all of that in mind, we will follow the pilgrims in our traditional detail, focusing on moments that were new to me, and I hope new to many of you. The story of the Mayflower and the Pilgrims at Plymouth is easily the most well-known moment in 17th century colonial America, at least to Americans who picked up their history haphazardly. After all, we are annually refreshed in it at some level on Thanksgiving, which I think of as the American Passover. Surely one of its purposes is to renew one of our national origin stories. A group of families of English religious refugees, separatists from the Church of England who had fled to Leiden in Holland and soon thought of themselves as pilgrims, sailed with an equal number of strangers from outside their sect to New England in the fall of 1620 on a small ship named Mayflower. Their most famous leaders were William Bradford, William Brewster, Edward Winslow, and the soldier Miles Standish. They aimed at the mouth of the Hudson, but fortune did not smile on their sails, and so arrived at today's Provincetown, Massachusetts, on November 11, 1620. Before disembarking, they entered into a compact for governing themselves, the first known moment of self-government by voluntary covenant in the history of the Americans. The significance of the Mayflower Compact would become one of early American history's great controversies, and that's the main topic of this episode. This one's a bit cerebral. The Mayflower settlers then spent the next few weeks exploring Cape Cod and its environs, looking for a place to settle. By mid-December, with winter upon them, they agreed on the site of an abandoned Indian village named Patuxet, renamed Plymouth by John Smith on his map of 1616. That first winter, around half of the settlers died from the usual causes. There had been essentially no contact with Indians, apart from a couple of early hostile encounters. But when the spring came, a local named Samoset approached. It turned out that he could speak some English. On a subsequent visit, he brought another Indian, a former resident of Patuxent named Tisquantum, who spoke English fairly well. Tisquantum would famously teach the pilgrims how to grow their own food in North America, 
and would help broker a peace with Massasoit, the chief of the local Wampanoag tribal group. That peace would fundamentally last 50 years. In November 1621, after a good harvest, the surviving settlers and a group of 60 or so Wampanoags would share a great feast, which comes down to us in our tradition as the first Thanksgiving. The pilgrims at Plymouth would struggle for two or three more years, but by 1624, they would be feeding themselves without fail and well on their way to organic growth. That same year, the group of investors who had backed the settlement of Plymouth would essentially disband, and that would sever the legal ties between the pilgrims and England. Finally, in 1630, a flotilla of 11 ships carrying at least 700 non-separatist Puritans under the leadership of John Winthrop would arrive at Salem and then move on to today's Boston. The settlements they established would be known as the Massachusetts Bay Colony and would grow far larger and much faster than Plymouth. Before the dawn of the 18th century, the Massachusetts Bay Colony would absorb Plymouth Colony. There you go. Along with such moments as the perhaps apocryphal first rescue of John Smith by Pocahontas and Paul Revere's ride still more than 150 years into the future. The story of the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving is one that until recently at least every even remotely educated American knew. Never fear, we shall cover it in detail and perhaps from an angle that you have not considered. I haven't quite worked all of that out yet. Before we do, however, I want to talk about how the story of the pilgrims, and especially the Mayflower Compact, has been told in histories of the United States over the last 150 years. General histories only have so much room to devote to any topic, so they focus on the few moments that their authors believe to be the most significant. That is itself instructive. So I dug through 13 of them, which conveniently are the 13 that happened to be piled up around my chair with rafts of post-it notes sticking out. The variations in the treatment of the pilgrims and the compact over time were interesting, at least to me. So I'll go through that and then wrap up with some modest observations of my own. In chronological order, the first history of the United States to talk about the pilgrims is the first real history of the United States. George Bancroft's 10-volume History of the United States of America from the Discovery of the Continent. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, Bancroft is regarded by many as the founding father of the historian game in the United States. Being the first writer of our history to be careful to assert facts only when he had primary sources to back them up. He wrote his history in multiple editions, published over 44 years, from 1834 to 1878. And the last edition is readily available by volumes via Amazon's Scholar Select series, which has been a huge help to me in making the podcast. Anyway, at 10 volumes running some 500 pages each, Bancroft has a lot more real estate to play with than any of America's other national biographers. He devotes 50 pages to the Pilgrims, which is approximately 48 more than all but one of the other histories I consulted, leaving out, of course, 
the specialized histories of Plymouth, such as Nathaniel Philbrick's Mayflower, which I suppose many of you have read. Bancroft was able to do this in his later editions, at least, because of the rediscovery and publication of William Bradford's Of Plymouth Plantation in 1856. Much of Bancroft's account is devoted to the history of the separatists who would organize the expedition and sail on the Mayflower. Like many of his successors, he would cite the Mayflower Compact as a seminal moment, and like some of them, he would relate it entirely as I will do now. Quote, In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign King James, having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends of the aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time, as shall be thought most convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. Then Bancroft leaves out the last sentence, perhaps because it's pro forma or maybe because it suggests submission to the British crown. Quote, In witness whereof we have hereunder subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, and the year of the reign of our sovereign Lord King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 44th. Anno Domini, 1620. Bancroft, who would shape our understanding of the Mayflower Compact for generations, wrote about the famous covenant almost poetically. Quote, The instrument was signed by the whole body of men, 41 in number, who, with their families, constituted the 102, the whole colony, the proper democracy that arrived in New England. Here was the birth of popular constitutional liberty. The Middle Age had been familiar with charters and constitutions, but they had been merely compacts for immunities, partial enfranchisements, patents of nobility, concessions of municipal privileges, or limitations of the sovereign power in favor of feudal institutions. In the cabin of the Mayflower, humanity recovered its rights and instituted government on the basis of equal laws enacted by all the people for the general good. Back to me. So here we have it. In the space of 16 months, a representative general assembly in Virginia, ordered by the governors of the Virginia Company, and a covenant of ordinary people on a leaky old ship in Provincetown Harbor. The first was a top-down device of corporate governance. The second was an organic agreement among those who would govern themselves. Of course, it would be noted by modern historians that women were not invited to sign the Mayflower Compact, an omission that did not trouble Bancroft. True enough, but even as Bancroft was writing more than 250 years later, 
women were still not eligible to vote in American elections. That would come in dribs and drabs and finally in a rush over the next 44 years. The next history in my pile is the second volume of A History of the English-Speaking Peoples by Winston Churchill, written in 1956. Much had changed, much had not. The half-American and resolutely monarchist Churchill devoted 13 pages to a chapter called The Mayflower. He, too, reproduced the compact in its entirety, which he described as a solemn compact, which is one of the remarkable documents in history, a spontaneous covenant for political organization. Samuel Eliot Morrison, whose birthday is July 9th, the very day I wrote these words, published the Oxford History of the American People in 1965. Morrison did not reproduce the compact in the two pages he devoted to the voyage of the Mayflower and the first year of the Pilgrims, but he did ascribe great significance to it. Quote, Therein they formed a civil body politic and promised all due submission and obedience to such just and equal laws as the government they set up might pass. This compact, like the Virginia Assembly, is an almost startling revelation of a second instance of Englishmen's determination to live in the colonies under a rule of law. We must never forget this. For in colonies of other European nations, the will of the prince, or his representative, was supreme. Back to me. That last sentence is a tad dodgy, it seems to me. The Spanish certainly thought they had the rule of law. Criminals were tried and lawsuits were brought and prosecuted. Remember that the son of Columbus even sued the king and won in the king's own court. The thing that makes the Mayflower Compact unique is that it was an organic covenant among equals, whereas the Virginia Company's General Assembly was a device imposed by the governing authority across the pond to manage the company's overseas settlements more effectively. In that regard, the General Assembly of Virginia looks more like a means of control than a tool of liberation. In 1969, J.C. Furness a non-historian who wrote widely on American society, wrote The Americans, A Social History of the United States, 1587 to 1914. Coming in at almost a thousand pages, Furness found two for the pilgrims, but does not mention the compact. Carl N. Degler, professor of history at Stanford and once president of the American Historical Association, wrote the single-volume American history out of our past in various editions between 1959 and 1984. Out of our past barely mentions the pilgrims, citing them only in a chapter titled Capitalism Came in the First Ships, describing their switch from communal property to individual private holdings, just as had happened at Jamestown. Paul Johnson, the immensely prolific British popular historian and social critic, wrote his History of the American People in 1997, again coming in at just under a thousand pages. Johnson reserved two pages for the pilgrims and had this to say about the Mayflower Compact, quote, an important event occurred on the voyage when the Mayflower was two months out from England and the discomforts of a crowded voyage were leading to dissension. 
On November 21st, the colony's leaders assembled in the main cabin and drew up a social compact designed to secure unity and provide for future government. In effect, it created a civil body politic to provide just and equal laws founded upon church teaching, the religious and secular governance of the colony to be in effect indistinguishable. This contract was based upon the original biblical covenant between God and the Israelites, but it reflected also early 17th century social contract theory, which was later to receive such notable expression in Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, 1655, and John Locke's Treatise of Civil Government, 1690. It's an amazing document for these earnest men and women to have agreed and drawn up, signed by all 41 heads of households aboard the tiny vessel in the midst of the troubled Atlantic, and it testified to the profound earnestness and high purpose with which they viewed their venture. Back to me. There's a quibble or two here. The compact was signed in Provincetown Harbor, not in the middle of the Atlantic. And perhaps a bigger point, it's far from clear that the pilgrims were out thinking Hobbes and Locke, beating them to the punch, so to speak. To the extent that they thought about covenants in social or civil matters, it would have come from their religion, as Johnson says, and their knowledge of contracts under the common law of England. In 1999, Howard Zinn published a People's History of the United States, a famously left-wing revision of American history. He devoted exactly one sentence to the Pilgrims, quote, When the Pilgrims came to New England, they too were coming not to vacant land, but to territory inhabited by tribes of Indians. That's it. Your teacher said that. It's not just my teacher. It's the truth. It's in my history book. So you finally read a book and it's bullshit. Sorry, that's the only relevant commentary I could find. Anyway, since the Pilgrims didn't actually see any Indians for the first three months they were at Pertuxet, and the nearest village was miles away, the truth, or lack thereof, in Zinn's critical version turns on the meaning of the word inhabited. If your presumption is that the entire Western Hemisphere was inherently inhabited by Indians, then Zinn would be correct. Presumably, though, he could then just cover that concept with a blanket statement instead of bringing it up every time somebody shows up. But if inhabited means something more precise than Zinn's usage, it would be much less accurate to say Patuxet in 1620 was, quote, inhabited than, for instance, the banks of the James River in 1607. In 2001, Alan Taylor, now professor of history at the University of Virginia, published American Colonies, The Settling of North America. It's a great book, and I will undoubtedly come back to it probably more than once. But Taylor does not think the pilgrims amounted to very much. He gives them one paragraph in almost 500 pages and does not mention the Mayflower Compact. In 2004, Walter A. McDougall, professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania, published Freedom Just Around the Corner, A New American History, 1585 to 1828. McDougall mentions the Mayflower Compact, but attributes no momentous significance to it. The pilgrims had sailed late in the year, we shall soon see why, and ended up at Cape Cod outside of the terms of their charter, which had specified the northern reach of Virginia Company territory, roughly the mouth of the Hudson. 
And McDougall's telling, quote, colonists who had signed on in London, he's meaning the strangers rather than the religious separatists from Leiden, promptly mutinied, which inspired the improvisation known as the Mayflower Compact. All but one of the Pilgrim Fathers made a covenant to form a civil body politic and obey just and equal laws as they may establish. They had, in effect, made a solemn pledge to violate the terms of their charter by settling outside its boundaries and under laws of their own making. And as the captain was determined to wait until spring to attempt his return crossing, the malcontents had no choice but to throw in their lot with the pilgrims. Harvard's Jill Lepore, whose 2018 book, These Truths, A History of the United States, was a huge bestseller, barely mentions the pilgrims of the compact, except to contrast them with Winthrop's Puritans who arrived later. Quote, the Mayflower Compact had described the union of Plymouth settlers into a body politic, but Winthrop described the union of his people in the body of Christ held together by the ligaments of love. In 2020, Louis P. Mazur of Rutgers wrote The Sum of Our Dreams, A Concise History of America. Mazur devoted one page out of about 300 to the pilgrims and mentioned the compact without characterizing its significance. Also in 2020, Wilfred M. McClay of the University of Oklahoma wrote Land of Hope, an Invitation to the Great American Story, an overtly positive text for schools and colleges positioned as response to the more critical takes of recent years. McClay returns to the more traditional view of the Mayflower Compact, quote, it was an important milestone in the development of self-governing political institutions, and it followed the same pattern by which the New Englanders were organizing their self-governing churches. Just as in the congregational churches, ordinary believers came together to create their own government. It was an astonishing moment in history, though, because it amounted to a real-world dramatization of the increasingly influential idea that civil society was based upon a social contract among its members. Here was a case where a group had actually covenanted with one another and with God. And finally, last but not least, is the judgment of the American YAP, a massively collaborative open U.S. history textbook, which is now in use in some of the more demanding high schools. The more than 300 collaborative authors of the American YAP focused their attention on Winthrop's Puritans and reduced the Pilgrims of Plymouth to a parenthetical, avoiding any mention of the Mayflower Compact. In 2006, Nathaniel Philbrick wrote Mayflower, which I trust many of you have read. If not, it's a great read, and you can buy it through the link in the show notes on the website. That would be much appreciated. Anyway, Philbrick devotes some space to the rising tensions between the Leiden separatists and the strangers, and says it was essential that they sign an agreement to resolve those differences. That agreement became, obviously, the Mayflower Compact. Philbrick says, quote, It is deeply ironic that the document many consider to mark the beginning of what would one day be called the United States came from a people who had more in common with a cult than a democratic society. Given the trajectory of American politics since Philbrick wrote those words 16 years ago, one might be forgiven for wondering whether it is deeply ironic. Anyway, 
Philbrick assesses the importance of the compact to history, quote, Given the future course of New England and the United States, there's a temptation to make more out of the Mayflower Compact than there actually was. In truth, the compact made no attempt to propose that they now alter the form of local government that existed in any town back in England. What made the document truly extraordinary was that it applied to a group of people who were 3,000 miles from their mother country. The physical reality of all that space and all the terror, freedom, and insularity it fostered informed everything that occurred in the days and years ahead. In the end, the Mayflower Compact represented a remarkable act of cool-headed and pragmatic resolve. They were nearing the end of a long and frightening voyage. They were bound for a place about which they knew essentially nothing. It was almost winter. They were without sufficient supplies of food. Some of them were sick, and two had already died. Still others were clamoring for a rebellion that would have meant the almost instantaneous collapse of their settlement and, most likely, their deaths. The Leideners might have looked to their military officer, Miles Standish, and ordered him to subdue the rebels. Instead, they put pen to paper and created a document that ranks with the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution as a seminal American text. Back to me. Philbrick identifies the temptation to make more out of the Mayflower Compact than is warranted, and then concludes that it ranks with the Declaration and the Constitution, almost as if he changed his mind in the writing of those two paragraphs. To be honest, that happens to me all the time. Before I offer my own modest opinions about the compact, we should ask how Americans looked on it during the more than 200 years that elapsed between the drafting of it in November 1620 and Bancroft's first history. In 1988, an English professor named Mark L. Sargent wrote a useful article for the New England Quarterly, The Conservative Covenant, The Rise of the Mayflower Compact and American Myth. Sargent's piece is a deep dive into the many uses and abuses of the compact for political purposes, and a lot of it's pretty arcane, actually. However, his introduction is pretty useful. Quote, Today the signers of the Mayflower Compact enjoy the accolades of an entire nation. Yet not until the eve of the revolution did they win much acclaim from their descendants. Most colonial historians introduced the pilgrims in a brief preamble, or shuffled them off to an appendix and focused instead on the planting of the colony at Massachusetts Bay, the Puritan settlement that eventually absorbed its struggling neighbor at Plymouth. By the late 18th century, though, the first shipload of separatists had knocked the Bay colonists out of their rank as founders of New England. Eleven years before the Declaration of Independence, John Adams, the great-grandson of a Bay colonist, had virtually ignored the separatists in his dissertation on canon and feudal law, a series of editorials on the ideals and origins of New England. However, between 1802 and 1805, when he was intermittently at work on his autobiography, Adams acknowledged that his dissertation might as well have been called an essay on Forefathers Rock. In the 40 years between Adams' dissertation and his biography, 
The landing of the Old Comers had become one of the central legends of New England, commemorated annually on Forefathers' Day. And Adams, not to be outdone by a new generation, belatedly gave himself credit for having shaped it. Former president was anxious to do his part to aggrandize the pilgrims because their increased stature could lend strength to Federalist forces. In 1797, the city of Boston joined Plymouth in commemorating the Pilgrims' Landing, and the celebrations often turned into Federalist carnivals, complete with toasts to Washington and Adams and insults for the heretics Jefferson and Payne. Back to me. The political weaponization of the Pilgrims and the Mayflower Compact followed quickly. Back to Sargent, quote, By the turn of the century, the Pilgrim's legend had reached something of a crossroads. On the one hand, the more conservative Federalists, determined to decry all Jacobins and infidel philosophers, were ready virtually to reconcile the Pilgrims with a crown. Unlike the 1770s, when Sam Adams and a handful of radicals had outwitted the Tories at Plymouth and turned the Forefathers' Day celebrations into tirades against British tyranny, The end of the century saw many Federalists willing to risk political apostasy in order to claim their descent from the wicked island of Great Britain rather than acknowledge the slightest debt to the French. Back to me. For those of you wondering about that bit, we covered at least some of it in the episode on Daniel Webster's speech on the 4th of July, 1800. It all ties together. What are we to make of the Mayflower Compact itself? and the historical uses of it. I think several things can be true all at the same time. As we've said before, sometimes a first of something is only that, because it didn't lead to the subsequent similar things in the series. The first football game between Princeton and Rutgers certainly led to more football games, so we can say it was an important first. Were the first enslaved blacks at Jamestown in 1619 a first, that led by cause and effect to widespread slavery in the American colonies? Or is their importance to history confined to their symbolism? There's plenty to argue about there, for sure. Was the Mayflower Compact important because it led by some provable means to other such instances, or because it was only the first example of something that would pop up repeatedly in the American colonies? Without being expert on the topic, and I'm not, my sense is that the influence of the Mayflower Compact fell in the middle. The Plymouth Colony would persist for more than 70 years, and in so doing, would certainly establish norms of civil engagement in New England. It would also emerge as an important symbol to be celebrated in revolutionary America. So as a first, its importance was at least part ex post facto. It is certainly true that politicians and historians have weaponized the Mayflower Compact since the development of Forefathers' Day in Plymouth as a politically important event. The first known reference to the compact for such purposes came in 1773, and we've seen how it would be used first to support rebellion from Great Britain and then, because of its expression of loyalty to King James, support for Great Britain during the wars of the French Revolution. Writers of history, who usually have their own agenda, whether they admit it or not, 
either exalt the compact as the first green shoot of government by consent in the new world, or ignore it entirely, imagining it was a mere expediency to resolve insurrection on board a small ship. In that reading, the compact had no meaningful, precedential, or traditional significance. In general, but with notable exceptions, historical regard for the compact turns on whether the author regards the English settlement of North America as a thing to be celebrated, or what it brought the world, or as a thing to be ashamed of because of the worst consequences of it for Indians and enslaved Africans and their descendants. George Bancroft, Samuel Eliot Morrison, and Paul Johnson manifestly fall in the former category, and Howard Zinn, the latter. This seems like a silly basis for considering the importance of the Mayflower Compact. As for me, I'm with Felbrick, or at least as I understand him. Whatever the long-term significance of the compact, as a solution to a governance crisis on the cramped Mayflower just off of Provincetown in 1620, it was a remarkable act of cool-headed and pragmatic resolve. Contrast the behavior of the separatists and the strangers with more or less the entire leadership of Jamestown during its first seven or eight years, any one of whom have turned to Miles Standish to resolve the matter with the implicit threat of violence, as John Smith had to do. Beyond that, it seems to me that the importance of the Mayflower Compact derives from the fact that the American revolutionary generation seized upon it. In weaponizing the compact for their own purposes, Adams and others converted it into something more important to our national story than it ever would have been in the abstract. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends. Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Write us a nice review on Apple. That really does help get the word out. And subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode... You can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can find either of them by searching in the way you search for everything else. This is a labor of love and your support is very motivating. And of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.